2: Hello and welcome to Backchat, nature's monthly retrospective on those news stories that we just couldn't get out of our heads. If you think of the regular podcast as a hard-hitting BBC news interview, then you can think of Backchat as a sit-down on the couch with Oprah, really getting to the heart of the science and maybe even making you cry. We're here to discuss the science we've been mulling over for the past month, as well as science news coverage from elsewhere. I'm Adam Levy, and joining me are three of Nature's journalistic crack team. They are Lizzie Gibney. Hi,
0: Adam. I cover physical sciences from our office here in London.
2: And we have Richard Van Norden. Hello, I edit Nature's News in London. And speaking from all the way across the pond in San Francisco, we have Monia Baker.
3: Hello, I cover issues of scientific reproducibility and scientific rigour.
2: Coming up, we take a look at some new results from the LHC. Is it finally showing us something unexpected? Theoretical physicists and science journalists alike are waiting with bated breath. We're also going to talk about reproducibility, again. This time, a crowdsourced study has put 100 psychological findings under the microscope to see what they're really made of. Spoiler alert, not all 100 were reproducible. And finally, Richard will be chatting back about interdisciplinarity, a word that not a single piece of spell-checking software on my computer believes is real. First up, to Geneva in Switzerland, where the LHC has some pretty exciting results, maybe. Lizzie, what's going on with this story?
0: Well, we always hope they'll be exciting. And um, everyone out there, people at the LHC and further afield, want to find something that doesn't fit with the standard model. Um, I'm definitely not going to tell you that we've done that. But we've got some results that are very intriguing. They've looked at the difference in the rate of decays of these particular particles, which are called B mesons. Um, in theory, they should decay into uh, electrons, muons, taus, uh, which are all different kinds of particles which are in like the same family, at the same rate. The universe should not choose between them because they're basically the same, just the muons are more massive than the electrons and the taus are even more massive. But what they found is that there's an ever-so-slight, tiny preference for decaying into taus over muons in this one particular decay that they've been looking at. Now, the extent of that is not a great amount. So it's got a a sigma, uh, we call it, if it's kind of statistical significance, of uh, 2.1. So that's not huge. Uh, If you remember when we had the Higgs announcement, they had to gather a huge amount of data and have a very strong signal before they could announce it. And the, the threshold there, as it usually is, in particle physics is five sigma. So in the case of the Higgs that meant that, uh, let me see if I can get this right, there's a one in three and a half million chance of getting a signal like that if actually there's nothing there at all. So we haven't reached that threshold, we'd love to, but uh, what is interesting is that a very similar effect has also been seen in two other experiments
2: superficially it might not sound like necessarily the most exciting thing you've got one particle that maybe not that many people have heard of decaying into some other particles that people might not have heard of in a way that one wouldn't have thought why is this so exciting so, really
1: for
0: 30 years what's been happening with the standard model is just that we've been proving again and again how accurate it is if the, um, you know, the universe actually picks between these different particles. That does not fit at all with the standard model. That's going to need entirely new physics to explain it.
1: So the standard model is kind of annoyingly right, but it also has to be wrong, right? Exactly.
0: Um, it doesn't explain dark matter. It doesn't explain gravity. So the standard model is very, very thorough, but it's also not correct. So physics is in a big conundrum at the moment.
2: What if it turns out, to actually be consistent with the standard model and everything else is consistent with the standard model?
0: Basically, what would probably happen is they would say, well, we know it's not right, but we know the standard model isn't correct. Maybe we need bigger experiments and maybe we need better experiments. um, But people would still keep on looking, I think. Um, We're in a kind of interesting era of of particle physics at the moment because for years people were trying to complete the standard model. You know, the Higgs is a part of the standard model and the LHC's big goal was to find that and it it did in 2012. So for so long, theory has been driving experiment and now there's just nothing out there to, to guide the experimenters. They are just looking in this big wilderness and trying to find whatever they can and hang on to it. And find something that tells them what kind of theory might be beneath the standard model somewhere, um, and then you have this situation where actually it's the theorists who are then kind of scrambling to try and explain these little hints that they find, and they call it ambulance chasing. So they're kind of they're running after the experimental results with their new theories.
2: How do we decide whether something like this is worth covering, and when we do cover it, that we cover it in the proper way?
0: Um, when I when I wrote the story, I was. As you always are when you write a story like this, I was just kind of braced for any kind of backlash because some of the really hardcore um, physicists will say, you know this is not this is not a result worth writing about. But what was really important here, and as we pull out the story is the fact that it was found in all the different experiments. Um, if it wasn't for that, we would definitely not have covered it. And I think we just we're guided by how excited physicists are, you know.
1: These experiments are throwing up these aberrations which don't rise to the level of discoveries all the time. And the question is, do our readers want to hear about them? Probably not, unless they reach some sort of level of physicist excitement, you know, so it's sort of calibrated. We need to a barometer what...
3: of that. We I
0: mean. yeah. <laughs> need
1: a unit of physicist excitement. Yeah. So it kind of raised eyebrows on this one, because three experiments had seen it, even though none of them had really a statistically significant Results are kind of worth mentioning.
0: But I think it's interesting for our readers anyway just to know that this is how it works. This is the the process of discovery in particle physics. Um, And yeah, they might disappear, but if people are intrigued and things are cropping up along the way, I think people want to hear about them.
2: While I was actually researching this story, I was kind of looking for recent CERN news, and I came up with a uh, news story um, from The Daily Reporter. That's the newspaper for Coldwater, Michigan, that I know we all read. Uh, on a daily basis, this story contains this real sentence. CERN is being used as a stargate so that human scientists will be able to go to and from currently unknown, perhaps very hostile, non-physical worlds and dimensions located and currently unseen outside our physical universe. Um, I, I don't think that has been fact-checked. <laughs> um, is
0: that a really elaborate analogy for, like, the fact that kind of multiverse theories or, like, Or do they actually think there's a Stargate?
2: They do go into quite a lot of detail about the Stargate. But I think with CERN and the LHC, it seems to invite, maybe not not this extreme, but it seems to invite not necessarily the best fact-checked science journalism. And I was wondering what the kind of most far-fetched or least well-fact-checked stories you guys had come
1: across were. The difficulty for CERN is they want people to cover them so when do they go big when do they go small on exciting science given that let's be honest most of the science at cern is completely incomprehensible and even the discovery of the higgs boson which is the thing it was set up to do was mostly incomprehensible
3: i have to say that i find physics incredibly confusing it always reminds me of of whist where you know like you have a trump and you have a suit and um and i'll i'll be like okay baryons Meson. I I I get the all the terms quite quite confused.
2: Meson is a particularly confusing term because there is a particle called the mu meson, which of course is not actually a meson. Don't
0: want to make it too easy, do you?
3: <laughs> so uh, I always find it rather fun when they talk about time travel and these kinds of things, but I don't really believe them.
2: <laughs> well, speaking of research that Monion may or may not believe in, there was a big effort to reproduce. 100 psychology studies recently. Monia, what's the story with this?
3: It involved 270 people who were all working to try to redo key experiments from a representative set of of papers that were collected from three psychology journals in in 2008. And this is sort of a glass half full, half empty kind of thing. Only 39% Of these replication studies agreed with the original studies. When they did get results in the same direction, the sort of the magnitude of the effect that researchers found was about half of what had been reported in the original study. I mean it was it was all kinds of studies in cognitive and and social Social psychology. Now, that does for any particular study. You can't say that the study is wrong. Um, for example, you had situations where people were trying to reproduce results in different countries, and you, it's very easy to think that cultural differences could explain why you would get different results, or or it's possible that there was something wrong with the replications. What the project was really setting out to do was to get a reliable snapshot on how often papers where results can be replicable.
2: I feel like psychology gets quite a bad rap from this story but is there any reason to think that this problem is unique to psychology or is it just that it's much harder to do a reproducibility study for something like the LHC?
3: So there was um, a study that was published in in 2012 which was looking at landmark cancer papers and there the rate was even lower. It was only 11% so there's no reason to think that psychology is a lot worse than other sciences
1: they did actually do we're not talking about fraud here right they did the study they got these people and they tested this effect and this is the numbers and the fact that when you did it again it didn't work does not invalidate the fact that they published the paper and they did it now what we're worrying about perhaps is that they should have repeated it themselves before they published the paper but then it was a psychological study with 40 people you want them to do it again before you publish the paper of course one aspect is just have better statistics do better studies but that seems like it's only part of the problem here like people could do better studies and still produce a lot of papers that if someone else bothered to reproduce them they wouldn't be able to match again
0: and the point is that they came up with results that were different but we're not necessarily saying that the first ones are wrong and the second ones are right just saying you can't come up with the same results Um, and it might be because of the experiment itself is is so difficult to do. One thing people keep saying is,
3: well, scientific papers should be 100% reproducible. And I don't believe that. I think that what we really need is just a healthier bit of skepticism about how certain any scientific paper is, that you need another group to look at it. You need other people to come at a question from, different angles. So I think that psychology does need to be more robust, but I also think that we need to have that the scientific community and the general community needs to have more appropriate expectations of just how much you can believe one scientific paper.
0: We obviously then get to the issue of incentives as well because there's not much incentive for somebody to reproduce a paper. They get the same result. Oh, look, it's already been found. It's not novel. It's not going to be published in any of the really big journals.
3: And and I should say that I think that um, psychology is getting smarter about how they do robust studies. I think it's important to say that these papers were selected from 2008. I talked to one person whose um, work did not replicate and I said, well, is this going to change what you do? And he said, well... I've already changed what I do I already have to do a different kind of analysis so that I can get it get it published
1: another story that's been around for a while Mon you were going to talk about where many statisticians were told were given a data set on um, referees giving red cards and were asked to work out whether referees had a bias and tend to give red cards more often to was it players with a darker skin I think and the great thing about this is that they all had a different approach and they came out with different answers on the same data set because of their different statistical approaches and these were all you know experts in their fields
3: the results they got were just all over the map they ranged from there's actually a slight benefit from having darker skin that one was not statistically significant to referees were three times more likely to give red cards penalties to players with with darker skin. And the scary thing is that of these um, 29 teams, um, any one of these studies could have been the one that was published, and that would have been the one that received all the media attention, and then subsequent studies would have had a much harder time getting any attention. I think it's really, really terrifying, actually, Um, and and from our perspective
0: as science journalists, because you know, especially at Nature, we're supposed to be have more scrutiny perhaps than than other outlets. Um, But you have a paper, you you look at how what the experiment was trying to do, how they did it, and they did their analysis, and they found this result, and that kind of there's that massive gap in the middle that is the way they did their analysis and the kind of statistics of it that in all honesty I rarely take my time to get my head
1: around. I guess the answer is the report is only as good as as the sources and if you know that statistics are important for the paper you'd hopefully send it around to a statistician but then you know as we've heard 29 teams can come up with very different opinions so.
3: I want to know the answer now. What is it? Do you-
0: there is no <laughs> truth. There is no sides. answer.
3: <laughs> there is no truth. So there's there's um a tentative consensus that yes, referees are more likely to give a red card to a player with darker skin. There's a ten- and, but the. The size of that effect is unclear, and it's even unclear what variables really matter.
0: I just wanted to jump in to say that um, physics isn't free from these issues. Um, There's a story I wrote a few months back on the issue of big G, the gravitational constant. Um, Using lots of different methods, people come up with different figures for that, and it's a massive problem in physics, and they're now trying to uh, go around and, like, repeat each other's experiments, with their setups, observe each other's effects, all together try and agree on which experiment is the best way of doing it. Um, but but they haven't got there yet. Big G is all over the place.
2: So do results like this mean that there isn't an objective reality and the scientific endeavour to find the truth is all fruitless and pointless?
0: Is that a nice happy note uh, <laughs> to leave us on, though? Right? <laughs>
2: Well, from one very hot topic of reproducibility to another, Richard, you have been mulling over interdisciplinarity, haven't you?
1: We have a special issue on that this week. I think everyone wants scientists from different disciplines to work together to solve problems like our future food supply, the sustainability of our energy system. Um, So we want social scientists, physicists, chemists, biologists, humanities all to work together together. Um, but it's actually very hard to make this happen. So the issue is kind of looking at all the um, blurb and the bump and the rubbish that's spouted about interdisciplinarity and then looking at um, attempts to make it actually work and get people from different disciplines to talk to each other and saying that it's actually one of the most important challenges we have um, today. And we don't know actually know very much about how to even quantify or study interdisciplinary research and what works well, it's its become something along with reproducibility that will be um, folks of great attention this year and next.
0: It, it sounds really intuitive, but do we definitely know that interdisciplinary research is better research?
1: Well, we absolutely don't, because how would you possibly measure it? So I talked to a lot of people who've been trying to measure the impact of interdisciplinary research to see if it's, quote, better. And the first stumbling block they have is that the only handle you have on is it better is does it get cited more, does it have high impact? And if you're gonna take that as your measure, the answer appears to be that in the short term, no, which kind of makes sense when you think about how people are gonna understand and and receive this work. Um, But after, in this study looked at after 13 years, the more interdisciplinary papers had more citations. So in this very narrow way, admittedly very narrow way, of looking at whether academics subsequently mentioned this stuff, yeah, after a very long time, you you will get more citations. So there is this problem that this interdisciplinary research is hard to do, um, it's hard to do well, and you don't even see a reward in the kind of window that's important for proving that you're doing a, a good job that your papers are well cited.
3: And when- people even think of interdisciplinarity as a sting? Heidi in the feature said it was in um, 1937
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that
0: the word was first used anyway. The
1: best the best bit about that is that um, also in 1937 a sociologist at the University of Chicago said interdisciplinarity was lumped in with other catchphrases and slogans which were not sufficiently critically examined so it was it was already a, a catcher by that point but to be honest the weird thing about interdisciplinary work is it kind of depends on their being disciplines. It's so political what you define as a discipline and an interdisciplinary. And what you really want is to get scientists who have different expertise working together and, and sharing their knowledge in order to, to address a new problem. It needs to be led by problems and questions, not by definitions of fields and whether you've managed to get four people from different fields in a room.
0: And it is very difficult. I mean, just look at our newsroom, right? I I cover physics and I've been writing this week about um, a uh, paper around nanoparticles and it's basically a medical paper and I have at the beginning no idea what we're saying.
2: But nature does identify, doesn't it, as an interdisciplinary beast?
1: Well, nature actually calls itself on its masthead the International Interdisciplinary Journal of Science and it says it's the most highly cited interdisciplinary journal but I'm, I'm not sure that research in nature is more interdisciplinary... Uh, than other research. In fact, if you look at papers in lots of different fields and say, well, which papers are referring to other disciplines all the time and which aren't? Particle physics is right at the bottom. Like it's totally siloed off. No one cites it who isn't in particle physics and it never references anyone else. But it's made a lot of great discoveries, right? I don't think we necessarily need that to be more interdisciplinary than another field like social studies of medicine or something like that, which comes out at the top of the the little chart we did
3: is is the enthusiasm for interdisciplinarity is that is that peaking right now? Was it um even more trendy twenty five years ago or fifty years ago?
1: It was really trendy uh, around the seventies, and um some people think that's related to things like when in the seventies we had the oil shock and people realizing that um traditional ways of solving big problems were not cutting it, and we had new questions and therefore we needed people to come together from different areas to solve those questions
0: and um, when you are doing you are trying to answer these very applied Questions, then I think it is quite obvious that you need people to come together, and people quite um, they welcome that. But I think in basic research, where it can also be very useful, there's a little bit more hostility. Um, I know certainly when these papers come up in our news meetings, um, and especially because I'm really interested in like physics and biology questions, and I, and I bring up a paper and I think, oh, this is really interesting, and and you and or Dan or someone says, oh, are they are they modelling this cow as square or whatever, and and it's a very fair point. You know, it, that's how physicists work. They They're modelling things. They're stripping it all back. So I think from both sides, maybe we need a little bit more humility about both Mm. the value you can bring to another discipline where people have been studying it for a very, very long time and have huge expertise. And from the other point of view, a little bit of acceptance and saying, actually, maybe, maybe you can tell us something. We don't know. There is value in looking at it from a different perspective.
2: I'd just like to take a minute to reflect on the cover of this week's Nature Issue, which has depicted on it several superheroes, including the Invisible Hand and Mind Marvel. Uh, the title reads Interdisciplinarity, Why Scientists Must Work Together to Save the World.
3: I was looking at that cover and I was thinking, oh, it's so it's so hopeful and optimistic. It really um, reflects the desires of these special funding programs for interdisciplinary, that if if everybody gets together, that some solutions will be found.
2: I was actually sat down by an editor to try and come up with names for these superheroes because I am a man and I read comics, apparently. I was told only one of those facts is true. I'll leave it up to your imaginations to guess which one.
3: I think we need a superhero to, to tell us how much a scientific paper saves the world.
2: Or a group of statisticians to tell us 20 different answers. <laughs> Before we move on from interdisciplinarity, our producer, Noah, has set a challenge to see whether anyone can say statistically significant interdisciplinarity three times in quick succession. I obviously can't because I struggle to say it once. Uh, anyone want to
1: rise to this challenge?
0: I'm just going to put my money on Van Norden here. I think I have no chance in hell.
1: Right. Statistically significant interdisciplinarity, statistically significant interdisciplinarity, statistically significant interdisciplinarity.
0: I think technically that was a win. <laughs> it it a could win. have been more graceful. but.
1: <laughs> so that concludes
2: our chat about the second buzzword of the day, interdisciplinarity. But before we go, I would like to ask everyone whether they have any other business, anything they want to cast off for this month.
0: Oh, for the bin of science. Mm. So there was a paper that it it got together some ice and amino acids, not the paper itself, an experiment, got together some ice and amino acids and some rock and it chucked a projectile into it and they um, created some peptides. The authors said at this press conference that almost certainly that means that uh, comets played a role in delivering the seeds of life to Earth. Um, And number one... That's rubbish. You can never say that means almost certainly. And number two, they've been doing experiments like this for years and years and years. And they've done lots of kind of simulations of uh, comets hitting Earth. And what they found here was peptides, which are kind of amino acids in chains with particular links between them. They haven't found peptides before, but they found a whole bunch of other stuff a million times before. And the only reason everyone read about this was because there was a press release and a press conference.
2: For someone who really likes comets... There are a lot of comet stories that seem to I get you back up. I love and
0: I love, you know, the origins of life. It's fascinating, but it is so hard to actually discover what happened, and it just deserves a lot of respect.
2: Speaking of comets, I would like to put something in the bin, which is the PhD Comics Movie 2, which I would like to put in the bin, Um I was never really going to like the idea of a PhD comics movie, let alone a second one, as I don't like the actual comics themselves. But the trailer just really put me off even more. And the best thing I've heard anyone say about it is... Well, it's pretty impressive that they managed to make it. That's true. It is impressive they managed to make it. But personally, I wish they hadn't. And
0: that's rather damning, given that you're the only one of us who's actually very recently finished a PhD. So.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I should be able to relate to all these things, but instead I find them deeply irritating. So let's throw that well and truly in the bin. And that is all we have time for. So thank you very much to Lizzie Gibney, Monia Baker, and Richard Van Norden. If you haven't got your fill of their witterings, make sure you go to nature.com forward slash news or if you want to harass them directly make sure you get in touch with them on twitter where can they do that at Rich VN for me
0: at lizzie gibney with an ie at manya underscore science
2: and to harass me go to at climate adam and if twitter is not your medium make sure you drop us line at podcast at nature.com.
3: flexibility is great that's why there's yoga
2: Um, Thanks a lot for listening.
3: Bye.